Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at the firm. As China continues to open its economy to the rest of the world, the Remimbi will have increasing importance on the international stage. Today's guest is Paula Subaki, who authored The People's Money, detailing how China is building a global currency. Paula is Professor of International Economics and Chair of the Advisory Board of Global Policy Institutes at Queen Mary University of London, and her work focuses on the functioning and governance of the international financial and monetary system. Her latest book, The Cost of Free Money, How Unfettered Capital Threatens Our Economic Future, was published in July 2020 by Yale University Press. Paula, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. We at Parkview, like many other investors, have been taking steps to strategically increase the size of our allocations to China. So we started to allocate to the Chinese bond market in addition to equities. But once you start allocating to bonds, questions regarding the currency take on a much bigger importance than when you're only looking at at equities. With the Chinese currency, there are many structural long-term issues that investors need to think about. And, and, you know, particularly for investors like us who are thinking strategically, not as a trade. So your book, The People's Money, How China is Building a Global Currency, was, was actually very useful for us in helping us think about some of the issues that we need to consider. Now, the yuan is the currency of the world's second largest economy, but its role in international finances is small. Its weight in the SDR basket, you know, as, as one indication of how that is, uh, is much small, you know, not much higher than that of sterling. In your book, you refer to it as a dwarf currency. Why is that? Well, thank you very much for uh, for uh, inviting me to, to, to discuss uh, the people's money. I think, uh, again, I'm glad that... Uh, uh, the book has been useful to uh, your uh, thinking about China. It is actually a long-term strategic thinking because uh, this, let's say, the renminbi or the yuan game is long-term game, and that's how it is intended by the uh, Chinese Monetary Authority. So it's not for today, it's not for tomorrow, it's for very long term. And so, um, you know, starting from your question, why is the dwarf, why I use dwarf uh, currency in my It's a very good word. I like that. (laughs) It's just to give the example and to give you the sense, even visual sense of how irrelevant is the Chinese currency vis-a-vis the size of the Chinese economy. You said then China is the second largest economy in the world. It is correct. It could be even now the first. It could have overtaken uh, the United States, depending how we measure GDP, the size of the economies. This is to say how important is the uh, is China, and yet it got a currency which is hardly used uh, outside China. And it's again in my book, I use what I think is a, a very useful. A test, which is the taxi driver's test, and say you arrive in the middle of the night in the airport, obviously assuming that we can go, we are traveling back to normal, and uh, you don't have the lo- local currencies in your wallet and to pay for a taxi ride down to your downtown hotel. You got dollars and you got renminbi which one is going the taxi driver is going to take if you have dollars in your wallet you can be absolutely sure 
then you will actually reach your final destination because the taxi driver will take dollars because dollars will be, it's, it's a liquid and easily exchangeable currency. It will probably charge over the, the odds for the privilege, but you can go, you can take that ride. If you have Raminbi, I'm sorry, I think you, you are, you probably will spend the night in the airport. This is because the taxi driver will probably regard the Raminbi as, you know, irrelevant money, as dwarf money in the sense, in the sense that he cannot change it easily, he cannot, at the very least, he will have to find even a bank that is prepared to take this, this, this uh, uh, currency. And so, you know, the Raminbi phase what the, the dollar consistently hit as, as a test. And so, and this is very much an historical, if you like, and the financial discrepancies with the size of the economy of China and the importance of the countries and the importance of this currency. Never happened before, you know, when Britain was the first industrial nation and the empire, sterling was the currency that everybody had in their wallet, even until, uh, even well after the, uh, the, the, uh, the Second World War. Is dollar is the case? Euro, the euro is the second most important currency in the world, which is reflect the second large, actually the largest trade areas in the world. But where is the renminbi in this context? I mean, it's very difficult. And that's why I think dwarf currency gives you the sense of this, you know, giant economy with this really small feet, and which is its financial capacity and uh, monetary capacity. You know, the Chinese have been talking about wanting to internationalize it and wanting to get their currency to play a bigger role in the international monetary system and in international trade. You know, look at the bilateral agreements that China signed, for example, with Russia, even there in that case, one wonders how much renminbi is used to settle. But they've effectively really created two currencies, you know, an onshore and then offshore, you know, the jury, these are the same, but de facto they're not. There's a there's an offshore market for renminbi, an onshore market for renminbi. They trade with different tickers in the market. How sustainable is this sort of two systems effectively? Let me actually answer your question with uh, um, a, a bit of history and, and, and a big clarification. Uh, we don't have a double, double circulation here, which is what China had to deal with for a long time after 1978, when he opening up his economy at the time of Deng Xiaoping. And there was this double circulation internally of uh, mm -hmm. two different currencies. And they had to remove this because that was a big hindrance to the, the economy. And so they managed to get rid of that. When you can't talk about these two currencies and the facto and the euro and effectively two currencies that are trading one on the domestic market and the and the other one on the offshore market, we're talking about a sort of a um, artificial um, expedient and that the the Chinese monetary authority came up with in order to create liquidity in the international markets for the renminbi without opening the domestic market. In other words, the big constraint of the renminbi is the, fa is the, the, the fact that China has controlled on capital, on this capital account. So money cannot freely flows in and out of China. The authorities have very much released a lot of these constraints over the years, but still retain the 
ability to somehow modulate, to, to tie the uh, flows as they deem is appropriate for, uh, the, for the domestic financial stability. Uh, the main concern is the banking sector. So in doing this and in, in using what the former govern, governor of the People's Bank of, Money, of China, the central bank, um, said is manage convertibility. So in other words, we let you move in and out of, of China, but we control these flows. So that means that then the liquidity is controlled internationally. The international liquidity is controlled effectively by the central bank. And that is a constraint for the internationalization of the renminbi. So one idea then came into place about uh, you know, 2010 was the creation of these offshore markets where the renminbi could be, the offshore renminbi could behave like any normal international currency and, uh, in, and move around and have plenty of liquidity, but that would not interfere and not affect the domestic financial uh, sector and that's with sort of the, the, the offshore market was a way to protect the domestic market. That's why we had these two currencies. And this really, uh, I would say the uh, big time for the offshore, the Remimbi offshore market was very much around between 2010 and, two, and two, two, 2016. Now is, is a bit less the case because there have been further opening up of the domestic financial sector, again, with a lot of very complicating regulatory, uh, regulatory, uh, regulatory, fr regulatory frameworks, but there has been this more, is now a bit more open. Um, but in those days, there were effectively, we had moments where there was a big divergence between the offshore renminbi and the onshore renminbi. And in fact, actually there was, quite large scope for arbitrage. It was something that the Chinese, again, monetary authority, authorities were not pleased with, and they tried to control this, uh, this uh, discrepancy or this divergence. In your book, you highlight that, that there are, between the different policy options that the government has, that invariably there are tensions that arise and choices that have to be made. And they're trying to, in a way, put it simply, have their cake and eat it too by having these capital controls in order to give them full autonomy on, in terms of monetary policy domestic. Is this a fair way of characterizing it? And, and to what extent, you know, how long will, will they be able to maintain that before they need to have a much more market-based mechanism? Well, this is exactly the dilemma. And, uh, and, and, and the dilemma then that, um, presented itself several times. And so I would say the uh, Chinese Central Bank uh, and the monetary authorities always has, has, have always regarded this this renminbi internationalization as a, a policy process and if you like even an experiment and in fact a way to characterize this process is crossing the river by touching the stone so that means we try and if it doesn't work we go back to back to the stones we left behind and this is really is um, and and this is because obviously they know then dealing with a financial reforms is a long and very complex and very difficult process, which will take much longer than 
the reform of the real economy that was the first big spurt in Chinese uh, development. Um, because there are so many different variables at play, including the role of the Chinese, the state-owned companies, state-owned banks, the uh, again, the use of some, and you, you refer to financial repression. So the thing is, um, the authorities are very well aware that financial instability could be absolutely a disaster. And they are completely terrified about creating or uh, even, you know, uh, creating the any kind of um, um, context or background that could trigger financial instability. So they face the choice of liberalized capital control a number of times. There was a point in the year 2012-2013 where there was this big push towards liberalizing capital controls and let, you know, the basically um, the idea was to reform the banking and financial sector from within. And the idea is by opening up and by exposing the financial sectors and Chinese banks to external competition to what you refer to market forces, that would actually help accelerate the necessary reforms. And that's what more or less happened in, in the trade sector. So again, you know, opening up, say, bringing uh, market practice from outside, help, uh, you know, modernizing, developing uh, many Chinese companies. But the authorities are very well aware that you cannot play with this game unless you know what you're doing. And the risk was so high, then they prefer to really control the system rather than opening up. So that means to some extent, the, these, these reforms will take forever. And to bring um, the financial and banking sector in China to the level then of, you know, can, seen elsewhere, so being you know, at the level requested in, uh, um, or necessary for uh, having, you know, be, be, for being able to, you know, having this capital influence and outflows without creating massive instability, it's, you know, it remains to be seen. So it's a long shot. And certainly the authority have paused on this uh, plan of opening the capital uh, the capital account, and they haven't set any any timetable. It will come when it will come. So if we ask, and, and, and you can see this in the discussion about the so-called rivalry with the dollar, the Chinese authority never put the rivalry with the dollar, the competition with the dollar as one of their objectives. They don't want to get into this game. They're not interested to get into this game. And they want to keep the um, tight control uh, on the timetable to avoid to make, uh, you know, very bad mistakes. And um, there have been some moments where we, we saw some really strong instability in particularly in the stock market in China and in the, in the currency, in the foreign exchange market that then pushed the authorities to even uh, even to, to actually tie up the controls. And, and that is a very clear, uh, I mean, sort of direction for the future, not opening unless they mean it and they can control it. 
So in a recent report published by the BIS, it was shown that 86% of central banks are actively engaged in some form of work related to central bank digital currencies. So China has been at the forefront here with their efforts to digitize the yuan. The Chinese government thinks that this could enable greater internationalization for the currency, but they're quite keen to to maintain effective control. Do you think that this is a realistic goal? The uh, Chinese central bank has taken a quite active role and actually a very active role in these uh, in these digital currencies and uh, and to some extent they they are even ahead of some of the other central banks in in, in thinking about these terms. Uh, one thing we need to be to be clear is the digital currency doesn't mean free flows of money and they will retain controls. So in, in other words, they, um, the digital currency, the digital yuan will help in the payments, international payments. So it will create again, an, another bit of the infrastructure than the central bank has been busy creating over the last 10 years to somehow help those who are interested to hold or use the yuan you know, internationally. So the infrastructure is there for market participants to take up and, and to use it. So having a digital currency, then you can use international, you can pay, instead of using your credit card, you can use your phone and it's all, you know, much easier. That's great. That's part of this infrastructure, but it won't change the dynamics of capital inflows and, and outflows in uh, in China. So the capital flows will continue to be managed and the convertibility of uh, the yuan, digital yuan or physical yuan will remain exactly the same. There is another element which might be of interest for investors in China, which is actually the a very important motivation for the central bank to introduce the digital yuan is that they effectively to re-get, re, uh, re to some extent, recapture those flows of payment which ended up in the hands of private companies, like uh, uh, using app like WePay, which it comes from uh, um, WeChat, which comes from Tencent, private company, and uh, Alipay, which is the um, financial arm of Alibaba, now in a private company called Unfinancials. And everybody knows because of the IPO then was uh, curb just a few days before going public. Um, that is uh, the, um, for many years now, at least for 10 years, um, WeChat and Alipay were happy news for private transactions outside the banking system. And so easy, costless, or very cheap, very easy for people to send themselves money using their phone or use or just pay for goods and services using their phone. The PBOC wanted to re sort of rein in this amount of payment under the uh, umbrella of the central bank because of regulatory issues, because of, uh, you know, isn't control, because these are, you know, there were a number of concerns about, I mean, 
this large amount of money, which was effectively outside the banking system in China. That is one of the reasons then the PBOC was quicker than other central banks to embrace a digital currency. Stepping back and, and thinking more about the long term and, and the future of the yuan, its role in the international monetary system, its role for investors, the appetite for investors to take on more yuan risk really is, is a question of trust in the institutions and the evolution of these institutions and importantly, the policy framework that is in place. Now, China's come a long way and, and you've, you've shown that, illustrated that very well in, in your book, but there's still a way to go. You know, what, what will it take from your perspective for, for the yuan to go to the next level in terms of its, its internal nationalization? What, what would be the, the, you know, the next sort of uh, signpost you will be looking for? This is a very challenging question for the simple reason that, uh, to some extent, it's, um, it's you know, counter, um, somehow it goes against the way the uh, Chinese uh, policymakers have dealt with the UN and the renminbi's internationalization over the last decade. Because there isn't such, there isn't a signpost as such, but there is a series of marginal, gradual, uh, incremental changes, many, many down the road from things that we can't even imagine, but they are all part of this process of making the yuan a more international currency. And again, I'll give you an example because it creates so much uh, uh, sort of tensions and bad feelings with the United States in particular. Even before the Trump administration, there was always the, the, the US Treasury always accused the um, accused China of currency manipulation. There are, you know, I quote this episode in my book, and there was more under the, the Trump administration, which actually I describe and discuss in my in my most recent more recent book, which is the cost of free money. The thing is, China will say we actually we are reforming the exchange rate. We make our exchange rate more flexible. So the Americans will say no, absolutely not. You know, you are a currency manipulator because again, the Americans were looking for obvious signposts. For the Chinese, the fact that they were actually opening up, creating more flexibility around the uh, band of, of fluctuations of the interest of the uh, exchange rate, for them, it was already a big achievement. And they managed incrementally to create this very wide band, which means, and then creating the way they manage the yuan. So the yuan remains a managed currency. But the scope for this management is so much more, is much more, um, I would say, it's broader than it used to be, then effectively makes the yuan a much more flexible and more like a, a floating exchange rate currency, even if it's not. See what I mean? And again, it's that's the way they operate. So what I would look for um, a gold post, possibly, first of all, when I can see an offshore and an RMB bond market outside the outside China, so in the offshore 
market, uh, basically like uh, the euro bond or the dollar bond, or the euro uh, dollars uh, market, then I would say, yes, it is. There is actually an uptake by international investors um, and they understand and they are confident in, in, in holding these uh, RMB denominated assets. At the moment, we got bonds, RMB denominated bonds outside China in uh, uh, offshore uh, markets like, uh, like London, but they are really small things and there isn't even a, a secondary market. So that to me would be a, a, an important point because you know the renminbi will start to make sort of waves as an international currency otherwise it's a currency that i think investors should have in their portfolio but tied to the assets so basically you need to have exposure to china and i strongly believe that any investor especially long-term investors should have exposure to china because it's uh, again as you said it's the second largest economy and is the is is driving innovation in some sectors, and so you know we cannot ignore China. One last question, Paula. I think a lot of investors, when they're you know, particularly if they're looking at bond market in China, you know, the bond market is interesting from a portfolio diversification perspective because because their monetary policy cycle is de-linked from from the U.S. and, and so there is diversification benefits to to having exposure there. But of course, it's only meaningful if you're taking the currency risk. And so, the the long-term view of the exchange rate of of the renminbi against other currencies uh, is important. And you rightly mentioned that, that you know, the band around the exchange rate has been widened significantly, but, but in practical terms, they've, they've managed this exchange rate very tightly. And, and in part because there are political constituencies in both directions. There are industries in China that benefit from a weaker currency and industries that benefit from a stronger currency. And, and, and they manage tight, this ship very tightly. How would you see this exchange rate evolving over the long term? Well, I don't take, I, I, don't, I don't do forecasts on the exchange rate, and I certainly I won't do any forecasts on China. It's too difficult because, again, as you said, there are many different considerations into the management of the exchange rate. So the exchange rate got much more flexible. It resembles more of a fixed, uh, of a flexible exchange rate, but the reality is that it's not because it's fixed to uh, more or less uh, to a basket in which the dollar is uh, uh, the most relevant currency and is adjusted daily. And interesting, I, you know, I was checking the level of the exchange rate at, at the moment is more or less where it was in 2016. And if you actually draw a line and you know, try to remove the um, the noise uh, around certain periods, um, then you basically you got an extremely, an extremely, uh, uh, I would say, uh, flat exchange rate. So it with very uh, little changes because that's again is in the nature of this beast. It is actually managed exchange rate. And then again, it's, uh, it's I would say uh, uh, the interest in China is not as a function of the interest rate or the uh, exchange rate, but the, the function of the assets that are priced in renminbi. And what I would say even if the renminbi is a, a dwarf currency, that shouldn't be a reason for discounting or not taking into account 
the underlying, the assets that are denominating the currency because they are, you know, as said before, it's a, an, an economy that cannot be ignored and certainly cannot be ignored by investors to take a global view of the world. On that, thank you very much, Paula. Always a pleasure to hear your insights and, and listen to your views. Thank you very much. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.